Hey guys, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Rachel. And you're listening to Sisters Spooked, the podcast where two sisters talk about all the creepy things. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a scary story, suggestions for an episode, or anything really, please email us at sisterspooked at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at sisters underscore spooked. And we also have a secret Facebook group, Sisters Spooked Secret Group. Our website is sisterspooked.com, where you'll be able to find our blog and much more. We're so excited to have you. It's time to get spooky. Sister Spooked contains graphic and explicit content. We recommend to listen at your discretion, but we hope you stay for the show. Thanks for listening. How come I can only see myself and I can't see you? Did you decline my video recording? No, it just never put the video on. Wow. Rude. You want to see mama? Sure, but... Oh, there it goes. Oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. How do you flip the camera? Oh, here. (laughs) Wait, you took a screenshot. I didn't mean to. That's why I said I didn't mean to. (laughs) Mama! Hi, Mama. She's destroying her birth, her Christmas present, like a little demon. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. You're who I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, you dummy. (laughs) You stupid. I'm talking about you, stupid. Adorable. Okay. Well. My case is super long, so do you want to get started? Sure. Are you wearing headphones because I can hear myself talking? No, I'm not. I guess that's fine. What the fuck was that? Uh, she was shaking. Oh, I thought, like, glass broke or something. No. She was just shaking her head so her collar was... Don't lick my hand. Okay. I don't want the video on. There you go. I look fugly. <laughs> oh. Wait, how do I turn my video off? Why do you have to turn your video off? It'll make me more with you. Okay, well, I guess. Then turn your <laughs> video back on. No, I look like a thumb. Just imagine a thumb, and that's me. Can you see you me? I can see you, yeah. Okay. Then don't complain. What? I'm not complaining. I said I don't. Oh, shut up, dude. At least, like, you don't look like you're a thumb. I mean, I do, but it's fine. Whatever. Okay. All right, let's get ready to rumble. Okay. Oh, is it? Am I supposed to say it's? (laughs) (laughs) it's time to get spooky (laughs) alright are we ever gonna get it right no one knows (laughs) alright okay is it my turn to go first yes okay me and mama are listening 
Okay, it's a doozy. Let me tell you, I a have doozy five pages of notes. So buckle oh, up. Good lord. <laughs> All right. Me and Mama are ready for the ride. Let me let me pop some popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> you honestly could. Um, okay. <laughs> this can make up. This can make up for the last one not being as long as we wanted it. Yeah, this one's gonna be long as hell because you you said your case is long too, right? Oh yeah, it's pretty long. Okay. Just yeah. like the information. Yeah, I got you. Okay. So this is the story of Fred and Rosemary so West. All about how my life. <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed <laughs> to sing that now. Um, <laughs> okay. So Frederick Walter Stephen West was born September 29th, 1941. He grew up in Brickerton Cottage, Much Markle or Marcel. I think it's Marco. Probably Marcel. Wait, how do you say how is it spelled? M A R C L E. Oh. I don't know. I'm gonna go with Markle. And not a name, but Herefordshire. His family was poor and farmed for work. His mother was overprotective and his father was a disciplinarian. Fred was clearly his mother's favorite child, and he didn't have many friendships outside of his six siblings. When Fred was 16, him and his brother joined a nearby youth club in Ledbury. There, his Herefordshire accent gave him the nickname of Country Bumpkin. While in town, he would fondle women and girls whom he believed were there to pleasure him as he saw fit. Why am I not surprised? Did that just slam in the water again? What? Oh, I threw Mama's toy yesterday for her, and it landed in the water, and she dragged water everywhere, and I think it just landed in the in the water again. Whoops. Well, and she's licking it now, so I'm gonna guess that yes, it did indeed land in the water. <sighs> okay. Really proceed. Good? No, no, no. It's okay. She'll figure it out. Oh, okay. Proceed. Okay. Um, at 17, Fred was in a motorcycle accident that caused a fractured skull, a broken arm, and a broken leg. He was unconscious for a week, and when he came to, he needed to walk with braces for months. Two years later, he suffered another major head injury because he groped a girl on a fire escape outside the Ledbury Youth Club, and she punched him in the face. Then he fell down two flights of stairs. Oh, darn. Shucks. Um, okay. Fred was 20 years old when his 13-year-old sister told her mother that Fred was raping her since the previous December and she had fallen pregnant. Wait, Fred was... what? <laughs> yes. Wait, you... what did you say? You what heard was me? their relationship? Um, she was his 13-year-old sister and he had oh been raping her for God. over a year. How and old was he? 20. What the fuck? I mean, not that, not that it matters, but what the fuck? Oh, yes. That is the first of many cringy things that have happened. So um, I think that's a little more than cringy, Stephanie. I mean, yeah. It's not good. <laughs> so, Fred was arrested in the same month and admitted to police that he molested young girls since his early teens. He even went as far to say... 
doesn't everybody do it? Ah, uh, yes. Doesn't everybody <laughs> do that? Yes. No, Fred. Everybody doesn't do that. Um, so his sister's name was Kitty. Um, and Kitty refused to testify at his trial, so the case fell apart. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, that That's, like, a trend in this story, so just, like, hold on for the ride. After this happened, Fred fam- Fred's family disowned him and banished him from their home. He moved to Much Markle with his aunt... Much? It's M-U-C-H. Do you think it's Mooch? Mooch Mark? I don't know. Is it where? What What country? It's the Europe. It's, uh, that's not a country, but okay. I mean, okay, like the UK. <laughs> Europe? Did you mean England? Sure. Stephanie, Europe is a continent. Okay, Rachel. With many, many, many countries and many different languages. That's yes, why I asked. I understand, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Because I was thinking if it was, like, German or something, it could be, like, Muke or something like that. I don't know. I don't... Yeah, I... I Unfortunately, I am unsure because I did not look at what continent slash country it was from. Anyway, <laughs> so... Kitty refused to testify. Oh, yeah, we said that. We said that. Um, somehow, though, he did mend his relationship with his parents, but the rest of his family, his relationship was strained due to his betrayal. Um, I can't believe their parents would be like, oh, yeah, it's chill. We forgive you. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, I never want to see you again, you, you nasty bastard. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not like the ideal situation. For Fred. Fred Fred fucked up. Um, and somehow, Fred was able to convince a woman to marry him. Oh, good lord. You, 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 you raped and got your sister pregnant? Yeah, it's chill. Let's, let's get married. Yep. It's fine. Everything's fine. In 1962, when Fred was 21, he married a woman named Catherine, who also went by Rena, Bernadette Costello. She was pregnant by a Pakistani bus driver, and when the baby was born, she was named Char- named Charmaine. Um, the couple moved to Coatbridge shortly after and told people that their daughter was adopted since she was mixed race, mixed race, and also that Rena had a miscarriage, and that's why they adopted. The kid. In this town, Fred worked as an ice cream truck driver. Of course he did. <laughs> of course he did. After he raped his sister, they didn't they didn't think to maybe like not let him near children. Right? Just a thought. Right. I mean it's Good fine. legislation there. It's fine. So in nineteen sixty four, Rena had a a daughter with Fred and they named her Anna Marie. Fred and Rena hired a nanny named Issa McNeil to help when Fred was at work. Through McNeil, the Wests were also introduced to Anne McFall, um, and she was just a friend of Issa and would frequently spend time at the house. Fred abused his children. Shocker. Wow. I'm very <laughs> surprised. 
He kept his girls in the bottom part of a bunk bed and fitted bars between the top and bottom bunk, which caged them in. The girls were only allowed out while he was at work. What the fuck? Yeah. Shortly after this, Rena began a romantic relationship with a man named John McLaughlin after Fred told Rena he had been sleeping with other women and even had a secret child with one of his lovers. This enraged... Oh, sorry. Messed up my notes. Um, Fred found out and started to beat not only Rena but the girls as well. And to escape the abuse, Rena McLaughlin and McNeil, the nanny, devised a plan. McNeil's boyfriend would pick them, pick the girls and Rena up and take the children to Scotland. One thing too, I had to leave some information out because there was just so much stuff that happened. So if you're confused at all, just let me know and I will try to explain it to the best of my ability. All right, I'm following so far. Okay, cool. Um, let me scroll down. We're on page two of five now. Okay, unfortunately, the plan did not go as planned. And McFall, if you remember, who is McNeil's friend, the nanny, um, she... Ooh, you scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Sorry, Juan just came in here. Uh, let me restart that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, unfortunately, this did not go as planned. McFall, who McNeil, the nanny, introduced to the family, snitched to Fred because she was infatuated with him after he told Fucking her... Fucking bitches going... are snitches. I know. Um, so apparently she was infatuated with him, and he told her he was going to marry her. Uh. Um, he must have been. Was he like attractive or something? No. How the hell has he got all these bitches? He was not cute at what all. The fuck. Look up Fred and Rosemary West, and you'll understand. All right. <laughs> Fred, Fred and Rosemary. Rosemary, like Rosemary's baby. What the fuck. Oh. Oh my God. How did he convince all these? I I know. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Fred arrived to the pickup location where Rita and the girls were, and ultimately the police were called because Fred was, like, threatening everyone and was just basically going batshit crazy because Rena was trying to take the kids away. The kids that, you know, he never wanted to see because he locked them in a bunk bed. Do you so- really think he never saw those children? Do you no. really think that he wasn't actually, like, probably secretly raping them or something? Oh, he 100% Seriously. was. He 100% was. Fred threatened Rena that if he ever saw her again, he'd kill her. End the, scene. By, did you just say end scene? Yes. <laughs> this is where we'll get into the first murder. So, let me scroll down. You know, it's weird. Most of the murders we've talked about so far, it's been, like, people who had never done anything before and this guy just has his track record and then I'm sure afterwards everyone was like oh, I never saw this coming like bitch how 
Yeah, no, he's just totally a piece of shit. So <laughs> just get ready because you thought the beginning was bad. Just, just wait. So in 1967, McFall, who is the friend of the nanny she was 18 years old and fred was 26 at the time so at least she was legal she became pregnant with fred's child so disgusted i know so there are these little like children running around with his dna everywhere because he knocked like 10 million people up oh yes (laughs) i know so Before she had the child, she vanished. What was I saying? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Before she had the child, she vanished. Fred did not report her missing, but her body was found dismembered in a nearby cornfield. Fred was not arrested for her murder, but did admit stabbing her to death after an argument to just a friend. And they were just like, oh, ha, ha, like nonchalant. So, oh my god, how dumb are people? <laughs> oh, haha, so funny, what a joke. Like, bitch, she, she, she's dead, why wouldn't you believe him? I know. Like, oh, ha 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 ha. I yeah. know. She dismembered herself, just for lols. <laughs> just for fun and games. Okay. So, the following month after McFall died, um, dumb bitch Rena moved back in with Fred and they relocated to Lake what? House Caravan. What Park. happened to them trying to escape? Well, that didn't happen. Yeah, but like, what What did he do? How did he stop them? There's no information on that? It just didn't happen? Oh, yeah. So, sorry, I left that part out. So, everyone who was trying to like help them escape, once Fred started going totally batshit crazy they just kind of pieced out and left yeah. so they're like okay we don't want to die but like you might die so sorry bye yeah amazing yeah so that sucks and yeah but that's when rena left because he told her that he would kill her if he ever saw her again and then she moved back in with him yeah it's fine right yeah So soon after the family moved, Rena pieced out again, but left the girls in the care of Fred. So when Fred had no one to supervise the children, he would place them in care of the glue. Okay, it's spelled G-L-O-U-C-E-S-T-E-R. Gloucester? Gloucester? Something, I don't know. It's probably something. British thing that we don't know how to say. Yeah, we'll say Gloucester Social Services. Um, and I was kind of wait. I'm sorry. You can drop children off at social services and not face any repercussions. Yeah. Here, have my kids. I don't want them anymore. Okay, bye. Yeah, exactly. I was like, what the hell? That just seems like very sketchy to me. But whatever. Well, I mean, at least you didn't keep them. I mean, he what he was using it as a daycare service. Oh basically. well, yeah. I don't know why they would give up, give them back to him. Yeah, I don't know if it's different in other countries, but in the U.S., that's not something that's a thing. 
<laughs> you drop your child off, you ain't getting them back. Yeah, you just should drop them off at daycare and not take them to social services because you probably won't ever see them again. Maybe, maybe in the UK that is like the equivalent of a daycare. Maybe that's, they just call it something different. Yeah, that's what I'm assuming, but you never know. Especially not with Fred. Weird. <laughs> well, All for right. the for the UK's like government, I should hope that they don't just let people drop their kids off at social services if it's the same as ours and then just come back and pick them up. Take it and want them back. Yeah. Because at one point in the story, it sounds like they're there for multiple days and weeks. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not 100% sure. I probably should have looked at it. Oh, before we got on the phone, but there was just so much information and I was trying to get it finished. With that being said, we'll move on to wife number two. Fred and Rosemary Lutz met in 1969, shortly after she turned 15. And at the time... What the fuck? Fred was 28 years old. What the hell? Yeah. (laughs) Damn. Rose worked at a nearby bread shop and was quickly wooed by, uh, why I was going to call him Frank, Fred. After a few weeks of dating, Rose left her job to become a nanny to Charmaine and Anna Marie, the children that he had with Rena. Yeah. So she made an agreement with Fred that he would give her money to provide to her parents so they still knew she had a job at the bread shop. So she was just trying to deceive them because she knew they wouldn't approve of hers, her and Frank's relationship. Months later, Rose introduced Fred to her family and they were disappoint- disappointed in her partner choice. No shit. <laughs> Her mother concluded Frank was a pathological liar and her father openly disproved of the relationship and frequently threatened Fred that he would call social services if he continued dating his daughter because, you know, she's a minor. When Rose was 16, her parents made a last-ditch effort to prevent their daughter from seeing Fred and took her to a police surgeon who determined she was pregnant. So I'm assuming they were, like, taking her there to, oh, she was raped, like, this man away from my daughter, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out she was already pregnant with his child, which is disgusting. Oh, my God. And Rose's parents placed her into, quote, unquote, care. But because, you know, how back in the day people were sent away when they had children out of wedlock. Well, I don't really know about that, but I can I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I don't know. This was in the 70s when that happened, so maybe that was not the thing back then, but I don't know. I'm not sure when that stopped being a thing. But anyway, when Rose was discharged, she quote-unquote promised she would terminate the child, but instead of terminating the present pregnancy, Rose opted to move in with Fred, which resulted in her family disowning her. What the hell? Oh, yeah, I'm going to terminate this pregnancy. JK, I'm moving in with him. Sorry. Yeah. So there's a lot of family disowning in this story because, you know, Fred was disowned for having relations with his small sister, 
Rose was disowned because she decided to get pregnant by someone who's 12 years older than her. Well, at 15, I don't think that's something you necessarily decide free-minded and free-willed, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. Especially with someone who's 28. I know. Ugh, nasty. I cringed through this whole thing. I'm even cringing. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, ugh, nasty. Fred and Rose moved to Gloucester, and in October of 1970, she gave birth to a baby girl and named her Heather Ann. Shortly after the birth of Heather, Fred was sentenced to prison for six and a half months for just some petty theft that he did. And in 1971, taking on all the children by herself, Rose killed... Charmaine, Fred's oldest daughter. What the fuck? Yeah. Wait, so she's the one who started? Bro, what the hell? Yeah, this is how it all started. started the killings? Yeah. While he was in jail? Yes. What the fuck? Well, that's interesting. Well, technically, this is the second murder, because remember, he killed that first girl that he got pregnant. Oh, right, but he didn't get arrested for it. Yeah, so this is the second murder. Right. When Rose was questioned, she explained to the courts that Rena had called and claimed her... Rena, the mother, called and claimed her eldest daughter and took her away. Um, And Rose stored Charmaine's body in the coal cellar at Midland Road until Fred was released from prison, and after he was released, he buried her body in their yard. What the fuck? Why? Oh, my God. He wasn't even like, oh, why did you kill my daughter? What the hell is going on? Let me call the police. Oh, like, this is fine. We'll just continue on. And Well, remember, he did have them locked away in a cage, so, like... That's true. <laughs> I think it, the, them, her killing his daughters is like the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Mm-hmm. That's true. In his opinion. Okay. We'll continue on because it only, it only gets worse from here. <laughs> Serena maintained contact with the children after her and Fred separated. She also visited the town where Fred lived asking where her children were. In 1971, Fred's sister-in-law, Christine, gave Rena... Fred's new address so she could confront Fred in person and demand custody of her daughters. This is the last time Rena was seen alive. When Rena's body was discovered, metal tubing was found in her remains, which led investigators to believe she was sexually assaulted shortly before or after her murder, and her body was also dismembered and placed in plastic bags and buried in a cluster. Did you say say Rena? Yes. They tracked down Rena and killed her? No, no, no. Sorry, I I missed that. It's okay. Fred's sister-in-law gave Rena Fred's address so she could confront Fred and demand custody of the daughters. And then that... She could have never left them with him. Well, yes, precisely. Yeah, not good. So she was dismembered and placed in plastic bags and buried in a cluster of trees in the letterbox field okay (sighs) i know it's very stressful so after all of this fred and rose were married 
No family or friends were invited to the wedding. And a few months after the two wed, Rose fell pregnant again with their second child. This prompted the couple to move again. This time, Fred purchased the property and converted the additional floors into bed sits or like it's really just like a hotel or bed and breakfast or something like that. And on June 1st of 1972, their second daughter, May June, was born. Get it? Because she was born on June 1st. and Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, that poor child. That sounds like an Asian name. Yeah. Um, and then shortly after the birth of their daughter, Rose began to work as a prostitute and operated from their upstairs bedroom. Her services were advertised in a local paper. She would get requests from both men and women. As Rose's clientele grew, so did her level of brutality, especially with women. By 1983, Rose had given birth to eight children. What at the least, fuck? oh, get this: at least three of the children were her clients, and Fred gladly accepted these children as his own. What the hell? Now they have. The one daughter from Rena still, the alive one. The two that her and Fred had together. I don't know if that, like, random child from the first marriage was ever in his life. And now they have these eight other children. So they've got eight, 11 or 12 kids together by this point. Wait, didn't it say by that year she had eight? So wouldn't that already include the first two she had? That I'm eight additional. Well, that's a good question. I don't know. It didn't say. Okay. Anyway, they have a shit ton of kids next. Yeah, exactly. So Fred and Rose faced a sexual assault trial, but as you may have guessed, it did not have any charges because the mother that accused them of sexually assaulting her daughter did not testify. After the trial, the West committed their first known murder and again the body was found dismembered after this five girls were murdered between 1973 and 1975 after that over the next 17 months four additional victims were killed so that's up to five six so that's ten murders no additional murders took place until 1977 after an eight-year-old named shirley robert Robinson stayed with the West. The final murder was committed in August of 1979. Allison Chambers, a 16-year-old runaway who became a live-in nanny for the family, she was only alive for a few weeks after she moved in. So I mean, nobody suspected them until the end. Really, they killed that many people. No one, no one did anything about it. Nope. God, what? Because these are, everyone they were killing was a runaway or didn't have any family. So no one was looking for these people, like really looking for these people that they were killing. So, ugh, it's just, just absolutely disgusting. But in 1987, Heather West, the eldest of the West daughters, left school and applied to numerous jobs to get out of her parents' home. After being rejected from multiple positions, Heather spent the n- one night sobbing and 
She confided in her brother and sister, but eventually the other children needed to leave to go to school. And when they returned home from school, her parents said she accepted a position at a company and had to leave before saying goodbye. Fred would frequently joke with his remaining children, saying they would end up under the patio like Heather if they kept misbehaving. In short, Fred and Rosemary killed Heather and buried her under the back porch. How am I going to take Mama out in the dark after hearing all of this? This is so messed up. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's almost done. We've only got two more pages. (laughs) Like a page and a half. After Fred had repeatedly raped one of his daughters, she confided in a close friend whose mother anonymously called the police. On August 6th, 1992, the police searched the West's home, but they did not find any evidence that the child was raped. Their daughter made a full statement that described her father's actions and stated the abuse started when she was 11 years old and her mother would either join in on the abuse or would watch. What the fuck? Yeah, dude, it's not good. It's not, it just is not good. So, the police launched an investigation and charged Fred with I keep wanting to call him Frank and charged Fred with three counts of rape and buggery. I'm not sure what that is. I meant to look it up and I forgot with Rose as an accomplice. Rose was charged with child cruelty, encouraging her husband to engage in sex with a minor and obstructing the police. When questioned about their daughter, Heather. Oh, I'm sorry. When questioned about their daughter, Heather, Fred advised she was supporting herself via prostitution. The day after Rose was questioned, she granted bail. She, I'm sorry. She was granted bail on the condition she did not contact her children, stepdaughter, or husband prior to the trial. Unfortunately, Anna Marie, the daughter. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, another daughter went forward. Anna Marie, the daughter that he was initially raping. She also made a statement, so her and her sister declined to testify at court on June 7th, 1993. And yet another case fell apart, so they were not charged with anything again. Um, And even though the Wests were acquitted of all charges, their minor children remained in foster care and were only allowed supervised visits with their parents. Police continued to search for Heather because there were no records of her being alive. And the police also discovered that even though Rena and Charmaine disappeared in 1971, no one ever filed a missing person report. The police then took the statement buried under the patio to heart and were able to get a warrant to search the home to see if Heather's body could be located. When the police arrived at the West home on February 24th, 1994, Rose came to the door and was served with the search warrant. She went pale and became hysterical, calling to her son, calling to her son, Stephen, to get his father, Fred. The police started questioning her about the circumstances around Heather's death, to which she said, I can't fucking remember. It's a bloody long time ago. Who do you think I am? A bloody computer? The next morning, the police returned, but Fred ended up giving himself up and confessed to Heather's murder. He confessed to dismembering her body on the bathroom floor and used a heavy serrated knife to dismember her body. 
He insisted Rose had no knowledge of their daughter's murder and that she was working with a client when it all happened. He then volunteered to take the police to the home to show them where exactly the body was buried. While the police were digging, they unearthed unearthed a mass grave. The police put Rose up in a safe house as they continued to conduct their investigation because Fred admitted to everything and said that Rose didn't have anything to do with the murders. And Fred calmly explained where all of the bodies were. There were five under his cellar, one under his bathroom floor, and after further searching, an additional six bodies were discovered. Fortunately, on April of 1994, Rose was also arrested for rape and physical assault. She was refused bail and questioned more about the murders. On April 25th, she was charged with murder. And on, oops, sorry, I missed it. On May 6th, both Rose and Fred were charged with five counts of murder, and Rose just replied, I'm innocent. Because, again, she never admitted to anything, and Fred was trying to cover up her being any part of the murders by saying he did everything. Yeah. So Fred was tried first, and at the end of his trial in June, him and his wife were charged with 11 murders, I'm sorry, Fred was charged with 11 murders and Rose was charged with 9. Fred was found guilty for all 11 murders and after he was in jail, he was found hanging from a rope he constructed with a blanket and stolen prison laundry bags. The police found a suicide note with a drawing of a gravestone and inside was written, In loving memory, Fred Fred West, Rose West, rest in peace where no shadow I cannot speak. Where no shadow falls, in perfect peace, he waits for Rose, his wife. He also wrote an additional note that stated, To Rose West, Steve, and May. Well, Rose, it's your birthday on the 29th of November, 1994, and you will be 41. And still beautiful, and still lovely, and I love you. You will always be in love. You will, I'm sorry. We will always be in love. The most wonderful thing in my life was when I met you. Our love is so special to us. So love, keep your promises to me. You know what they are. Where we are put together forever and ever is up to you. We loved Heather, both of us. I would love Charmaine to be with Heather and Rena. You will always be Mrs. West all over the world. That is important to me and to you. I haven't got you a present but all I have is my life. I will give it to you, my darling. When you are ready, come to me, and I will be waiting. What the fuck? Yeah. So, the last part of this is Rose's trial. So, at Rose's trial, she pled guilty to all all ten charges of murder that she ended up being tried for. The prosecutor pointed out that Fred was in jail when Charmaine was killed, so that only left her to do the murder. After several weeks... Who was Charmaine? Charmaine Charmaine was Rena's first daughter that she had with that... Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, how old was she? Wouldn't she have had to have been, like, old enough to be out of the house? Were they, like, holding her hostage or something? Like, So, it all took place within, like... 10 years so she was still pretty young oh yeah she was she couldn't have been more than probably like 12 or 13 
Well, didn't you say one of his daughters, Heather, was old enough to get a job? Yeah, but that was further down the line. Hold on one second. But if he was in jail, oh, the six mo- six and a half month time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah. So still pretty young when that happened. I should have written down all the dates. Sorry, that was something I left out. Okay, so after seven weeks of evidence, the judge emphasized to the jury circumstantial evidence can be sufficient for a finding of guilt and that if two people take part in a murder, the law considers them equally guilty, regardless of which of them did the deed. On November 21st and 22nd of 1994, the jury... Or I'm sorry, I think this is 1995. The jury returned guilty verdicts for all the murders. Rosemary was sentenced to life in prison without parole. She is still alive today, and she's still trying to tell people that she is innocent and never committed any crime. Wait, she's still alive? Yeah. Is she in jail? Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's the story of Fred and Rosemary West. <laughs> so mine were, they were about Mira Hindley and Ian Brady. And this also took place in UK in Manchester, England. They're, it's referred to as the Moore, or Moore's murders. So they started in July 1963 and... Um, ended in October 1965. So the victims were, they were all children ranging in age from 10 to 17. The victims were Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, or Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans. Um, they know that at least four of them were sexually assaulted before they were killed. So initially, two victims were discovered in graves that were dug up in Saddleworth Moor, and the third grade was discovered more than 20 years after their trial in 1987. Initially, only two victims were discovered in graves dug in Saddleworth Moor, and the third grade, like I said, more than 20 years later, in 1987, was also found. Okay, so initially, only three killings were made aware. Edward, Leslie, and John. Investigation reopened 20 years later in 1985 because Brady confessed to the murders of Pauline and Keith. Brady was declared criminally insane in 1985 and put in Oshworth Hospital, which is high security for the criminally insane. He, He said that he wished to never be released and to be allowed to die, so... He, clearly, he was feeling guilt for everything he did, which is good. So, yeah, so the, the story about each of the victims, it's like, it's different. Cause it's different than the, the stuff we've been doing because it's all it all happened in one night. So mm. I'm going to talk about the victims. The first victim was 16-year-old Holly Reed. Um, she was Hindley's neighbor, Mira Hindley, the woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was her neighbor who disappeared on her way to dance on July 12, 1963. Brady wanted to commit his perfect murder with her. They actually provided different accounts of the murder. Basically, what, what they said happened initially, he wanted her to drive a van. So Brady, Brady wanted Hindley to drive a van. And then he was following them on a motorbike. He, um, oh shoot, this is the, okay, so. 
Oh, this is for a new one. Okay. So basically, how they were trying to do this was that he told her to drive the van and he was following. And when he spotted a victim, he would flash his headlight. And then Hindley was to stop and offer that person a lift. So they were driving down and he saw a young girl walking towards them and he signaled for her to stop. But she didn't she didn't stop until she had passed the girl. So he he was wondering why she didn't stop and offer the girl a ride. And she said it's because she recognized her as Mary Ruck, who was a neighbor of her mother. So shortly after 8 p.m., counting down, oh, continuing down the street that they were on, they spotted a girl wearing pale blue, a pale blue coat and white high-heeled shoes walking away from them. So he signaled for them to stop again, and Hindley recognized her as Pauline Reed, a friend of her younger sister, Maureen. So Reed got into the van with Hindley, who then asked if she would mind helping to search for an expensive glove she had lost in Saddleworth. Like I said earlier, Saddleworth is where they found the graves of two of the victims. So Reed said she was in no great hurry and agreed to help her. So at, at 16, Pauline was older than Marie, and Hindley believed that there would be less of an outcry over the disappearance of a teenager than there would be over a child of seven or eight. So he figured if they had taken Marie, I, I guess she was probably trying to justify herself to Ian Brady and be like, well, this is why I didn't do this. Like, if she's older, less people will care, you know. When the van reached the moor, Hindley stopped, and then Brady arrived afterwards on his motorcycle, and she introduced him as her boyfriend and said that he also came to help find the glove. So Hindley claimed Brady took Reed into the moor while she waited in the van. Brady returned alone after about 30 minutes and took Hindley to the spot where Reed lay dying. Her throat had been cut twice with a large knife. The larger of these wounds was a four-inch incision across her voice box, and the collar of Reed's coat had been deliberate, deliberately pushed into this wound. Ew. Oh, my gosh. Disgusting. Yeah. He told her to stay with her while he, he went to get a spade that he had hidden nearby to bury the body. So they're going to dig a grave with a spade? Well, that doesn't seem... Like a good idea. Maybe maybe in their language, spade means a shovel. Probably. Because isn't a spade, like here, isn't that that little tiny garden digging thing? Um, that's shaped like a spade? We'll say yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so he told her to stay while he fetched that to bury the body. And Hindley noticed that Pauline's coat was undone and her clothes were everywhere. And she guessed that he had sexually assaulted her. Um, oh, Brady's okay. account differed from Hindley's. He claimed that Hindley was not only there at the scene, that she assisted him with the sexual assault. Ooh. So, I guess since they were the only two there who knew what happened, you don't know what to believe. Jesus. So, they returned home and they loaded the motorcycle back into the van and then they actually passed the the girl they had just murdered, they passed her mother, Joan, who was accompanied by their son, Paul, searching in the streets for them. Oh, my God. Yeah, so they were like, sorry, I just killed your daughter. Yikes. That's so sad. Yeah. 
All right, so that's one of them. That was, that was the first. And then, here, I'll, the one. <laughs> I'll take you out as soon as, I'm, as soon as I'm done with this, okay? She's so needy. <laughs> yeah, all that happened. Okay, I'll throw it for you. Okay. Let go. All right, I'm going to throw it for you. Okay. So, Hindley approached, this is the second one, John Kilbride. She approached the 12-year-old, he was 12, in the evening of November 23rd, 1963. So this was about, what, two months? Oh, three, four months after. Mm-hmm. Five months. This is five months after the first murder. She approached him at a market and offered him a ride home using the fact that his parents would be worried about him being out so late. She also said that she had a bottle of sherry, which I don't know why to a 12-year-old that would be like, oh, yeah, a bottle of sherry, sign me up for that. It's a 12-year-old thing in the 60s. (laughs) So um, he readily agreed to get in the car, and Brady told Kilbride that the sherry was at their house and that they would have to make a detour to collect it. On the way, he suggested that they take another detour to search for a glove he said that Hindley had lost in the moor where they buried the first girl so when they reached the moor brady took kilbride with him while hindley waited in the car brady sexually assaulted kilbride and attempted to slit his throat with a six inch serrated blade before fatally strangling him with a piece of string possibly a shoelace oh god yeah, so can you imagine how much force it would take to actually strangle someone let alone with a piece of string like that. No, I can't imagine how fucked up you'd have to be to do any of this. Jesus. So the third victim, 12-year-old Keith Bennett, vanished on his way to his grandmother's house in Longsight, Manchester. And in the early evening of June 16th, 1964, four days after his birthday. So apparently these killings gave Ian Brady... A six, five to six month reprieve of his killing tendencies, and then he had to kill again. Apparently, twelve-year-old Keith Bennett vanished on his way to his grandmother's house in Manchester, and this was on the evening of June sixteenth, nineteen sixty-four, which was only four days after his birthday. Hindley lured him into her car, which Brady was sitting in the back of, by asking for his help to locate some boxes after which she said she would drive him home. She drove to a lay-by. I don't, I'm not sure what that is, but... It's like a rest area. How would we say... Well, I guess we call them rest areas. Like a rest stop? Like, that has restaurants and, like, like, bathrooms and stuff? Yeah. Okay. Brady went off with Bennett, supposedly looking for a lost glove. Shocker. (laughs) Hindley kept watch, and after about 30 minutes or so, Brady reappeared alone and carrying a spade that he had hidden there earlier. When Hindley asked how he had killed Bennett, Brady said that he had sexually assaulted the boy and strangled him with a piece of string. Jesus. What the hell is wrong with this guy? Why is she helping him, too? I don't know. I don't know. That their MO, though, strangling with a piece of string and sexually assaulting, that's disgusting. Jesus Christ. All right. Well, it says they only proved that four out of the. Oh, I guess that's four and five. That's a decent amount. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Brady and Hindley 
Okay, so that that was the third. On to the fourth victim, a 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Why are you doing this to me, Mama? The fourth victim was 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey was the fourth victim. And this was December 26, 1964. And they were searching for another victim at a fairground. And they noticed her standing beside one of the rides. When it became apparent that she was on her own, which, why would you let a 10-year-old be alone at At a a fairground? fairground. That's (laughs) the worst decision ever. They approached her and deliberately dropped some of the stuff that they had in their hands that they were carrying close to her before asking for the girl's help to carry some of the packages to their car. Oh, I read that in the wrong tone of voice. <laughs> Kill myself. <laughs> okay, so they dropped shopping in front of her and asked for help carrying it back to their house. Okay, so once they were inside the house, Downey was undressed. I hate it. Oh my gosh. Okay, major trigger warning. Once inside the house, Downey was undressed, gagged, and forced to pose for photographs before being raped and killed. Jesus. Perhaps strangled with a piece of string. Jesus. Ten. Ten. God. It makes me want to cry. Hinley maintained that she went to fill a bath for Downey and found her dead, presumably killed by Brady, when she returned. (sighs) Hmm. But but a in a in a book trip. in a in a book written by Chris Cowley about Ian Brady, Brady said that it was Hinley who killed Downey. So I guess we'll never know. But I don't know. The following morning, Brady and Hinley drove with Downey's body to Saddleworth, where she was buried naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. Ugh. Oh, Jesus. So oh, so so those were the four found at Saddleworth. Mm-hmm. Wait, what were the other two? The other two? Holly and Keith. Oh, he didn't admit to Keith, even though Keith was the second. Wait, yeah, no. Keith was the third one killed, but they didn't admit to him until later. So. Jesus. Alright, so October 6, 1965 is when the last the fifth and the last murder took place. So Brady met um, Edward Evans, who was a 17-year-old apprentice engineer at Manchester Central Ra- Railway Station. And he invited him into his home in Cheshire, where Brady beat him with an axe and strangled him to death. Oh, my God. And that was the fifth and final. So Wait, there's... I thought you said there were six. No, there's five. Oh, Okay. Five, five children, yes. So there's even more information on the murder of Edward Evans. It was witnessed by Hinley's 17-year-old brother-in-law, David Smith, the husband of her younger sister. Okay, I was like, I was like, where does that add up? Okay. <laughs> so the husband of her younger sister, he was 17 and they were married. Wow, that's crazy. So the Hinley family had not approved of Maureen's marriage to Smith, who had several criminal convictions, including actual bodily harm and housebreak oh yeah and housebreaking the first of which wounding the intent wounding with intent occurred when he was 11 wow so he he was a little wild throughout the previous year brady had been cultivating a friendship with smith who had become in awe of the older man something that increasingly worried hindley as she felt it compromised their safety 
Not because she doesn't want this poor person to be converted or shown evil ways, but because she didn't want to be compromised. So on the evening of October 6th, 1965, which is when Edward was killed, Hindley drove Brady to Manchester Railway Station, where she waited outside the car while he selected their victim. After a few minutes, he reappeared with Edwards, with Edward, who he introduced Hindley as, which he, he introduced Hindley as his sister to Edward. After they had driven back home, they had a bottle of wine, and Brady sent Hindley to fetch her brother-in-law. Oh my gosh. Wow. When they got back to the house, Hindley told Smith to wait outside for her signal, a flashing light. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door and was met by Brady, who asked if he had come for the miniature wine bottles. Brady led Smith into the kitchen and left him there, saying he was going to collect the wine. A few minutes later, Smith heard a scream, followed by Hindley shouting loudly for him to come and help. Smith entered the living room to find Brady repeatedly striking Evans with a flat of an axe and watched as he then throttled Evans with the length of an electrical cord. Oh my god. His body was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own, and Brady had sprained his ankle in the struggle, so they wrapped it in, a, in plastic sheeting and put it in the spare room. So he did this on purpose to get Smith involved, so that he wouldn't be taking the sole blame for all of this. God. So Smith agreed to meet Brady the following evening to dispose of his body. But on returning home and relating to Maureen what he had seen, she insisted that he call the police. What the hell? Wow. Okay, Smith told the police that, quote, Brady opened the door and said in a very loud voice for him, do you want those miniatures? I nodded my head to say yes, and he led me into the kitchen, and he gave me three miniature bottles of spirits and said, do you want the rest? When I first walked into the house, the door to the living room was closed. Ian went into the living room, and I waited in the kitchen. I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. Then I heard Mira shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room, and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch, and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head, and he hit the lad on the left side of the head with his hatchet. I heard the blow. Oh. It was a terrible, hard blow. It sounded horrible. I just can feel getting smacked with an axe. Like, well, I can't. you can't. <laughs> I mean, but you can just imagine what that would feel like. No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> so, the day, the morning after the murder took place, shortly after Smith called them, the superintendent of the Cheshire, Cheshire police arrived at the back door of the house, of said, like, house. He was wearing ba- Baker's overall to cover his uniform, and he identified himself to Hindley as a police officer when she opened the door and told her that he wanted to speak to her boyfriend. Henley led him into the living room where Brady was sitting up in a divan. divan? I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm guessing it's just some kind of chair. 
writing a note to his employer explaining that he would not be able to go into work because of his ankle. He Talbot, the superintendent, explained that he was investigating an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. Henley denied that there had been any violence and allowed police to look around the house. Henley claimed that that the key was at work, so he couldn't... Oh, sorry. So, when they came upstairs to the room in which Evan's body was stored, the police found the door locked and asked Brady for the key, but he claimed that it was at work. After the police offered to drive her to her employer's premises to retrieve it, Brady told her to hand the key over. When they returned to the living room, the police told Brady that they had discovered a trussed-up body and that he was being arrested on suspicion of murder. As Brady was getting dressed, he said, quote, Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand, end quote. Hindley was not arrested with Brady, but she demanded to go with him to the police station, accompanied by her dog, Puppet, to which the police agreed. Um, she was questioned about the events, but she refused to make a statement beyond claiming that it had been an accident. What the hell was that? Uh, there's so many creepy noises. Okay. She... She was allowed to go home on the condition that she would return the next day for further questioning. She was at liberty for four days following Brady's arrest, during which time she went to her employer's premises and asked to be dismissed so that she would be eligible for unemployment. While in the office where Brady worked, she found some papers belonging to him in an envelope that she claimed she did not open, which she burned in an ashtray. She believed that they were plans for bank robberies, nothing to do with the murders. On October 11th, Henley was charged as an accessory to the murder of Edward Evans and was, yeah, shoot, yeah, so she was charged with that. At this point, they only know of, of the final murder. They don't know about any of the other ones right now. Oh, Lord. There's, I told you there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> Ian Brady admitted during questioning that he and Evans had fought, but insisted that he and Smith had mur- murdered Evans between them. Henley said he had only done what she had been told. Well, that's not going to get you out of jail, sorry. Right? I only um, did it because he told me to. Rachel, okay. I need you to go murder someone for me. Okay, thanks. Oh, I thought she... Stephanie? <laughs> if you're going to make a joke, don't make it sound so serious. Your tone of voice scared me. <laughs> I'm on edge right now. I don't want to talk about creepy things, especially when I have to take my dog outside. Well, Sorry. In the dark, alone. She better pee, and then we gonna come right back inside. <laughs> so, um, Henley said, yeah, she was only doing what she'd been told. And Smith told police that Brady had asked him to return anything incriminating, incriminating such as dodgy books. Well, I don't really know what that would mean, necessarily. So, okay, Smith had no idea what else the suitcases contained, or where they might be. But... He just knew that he put incriminating things into suitcases. He mentioned in passing that Brady, quote, had a thing about railway stations, end quote. The police consequently requested a search of all Manchester's left luggage offices for any suitcases belonging to Brady. And on October 15th, they found what they were looking for. And the left luggage ticket was found several days later in the back of Hindley's prayer book. Wow, that that sounds like this investigation. Can you stop doing that? It sounds like this investigation was one for the books. Like whoever discovered that was like whoever discovered that his like of, I don't know. It reminds me of the Sherlock episode where he found her luggage and phone and stuff. You know the pink, mm. the pink yeah whatever. So 
because it sounds like pretty fictional with how it played out. Yeah. So inside one of the suitcases were nine pornographic photographs taken of a young girl naked and with a scarf tied around across her mouth and a 16-minute tape recording of her screaming and pleading for help. And Downey, and Downey, Leslie and Downey's mother, later listened to the tape after police had discovered the body of her missing 10-year-old daughter and confirmed that it was a recording of her daughter's voice. Uh, yeah, so... Hindley was arrested on October 11th after new evidence had emerged during the continuing investigation that she had also been actively involved in the murder of Edward. She and Brady were both charged with the murder, with the murder of Edward while the police searched the moors for further victims. Um, they were searching the house and found an old exercise book in which the name John Kilbride had been scribbled which made them suspicious that Brady and Hindley might have been involved in the unsolved disappearances of other youngsters. Oh, God. Yeah, so. <laughs> a large collection of photographs were discovered in the house, many of which seemed to have been taken on Saddleworth Moor. How dumb can you be? Like, what? Oh, God. I don't know. So... 150 officers. Wow! 150 officers! were drafted to search the moor, looking for locations that matched the photographs. Initially, the search was concentrated along the road near Woodhead, but a close neighbor, 11-year-old Pat Hodges, Mama, homegirl, he had on on several occasions been taken to the moor by Brady and Hindley, and she was able to point out their favorite sites along the road. On October 16th, police found an arm bone sticking out of the peak. Oh my gosh! They didn't even bury the bodies right! Oh my gosh. gosh. So they presumed that they had found the body of John Kilbride, but soon discovered that it was that of Leslie Ann Downey. Her mother, Ann West, had been on the moor watching as the police conducted their search, but was not present when the body was found. It was still visually unidentifiable when recovered. Unidentifiable or identifiable? It was still visually identifiable when recovered. She was shown shown clothing recovered from the grave and identified it as belonging to her missing daughter. That's disgusting. There's a picture um, taken by Ian of Mira with her dog puppet crouching over John Kilbride's grave on Saddleworth Moor. This is so twisted. I can't believe people live like this. Yeah, that's that's disgusting. Detectives located another site on the opposite side from where Leslie was discovered and five days later found a badly decomposed body of John Kilbride. He had to be identified by clothing. That same day, that same day, already being held for the murders of Evans, Brady and Hindley appeared at court charged with Leslie and Downey's murder. Each was brought before the court separately and, and remained and put into custody for a week. They made a two-minute appearance on October 28th and were again put back into custody. Sorry. Mama's being really needy. It's 10 o'clock. Can you go see? So, yeah. So that's... Right now, we're at three out of the five. And then, oh, so that's where, 
that's where Keith and Pauline come in because they haven't found they hadn't found them yet. There were a lot of photographs taken by Brady that featured their dog, <laughs> sometimes as a puppy. So they had <laughs> the detectives arranged for the animal to be examined by a veterinary surgeon to determine its age, from which they could date when the pictures were taken. The examination involved analysis of the, analysis of the teeth. Oh, Oh, which required a general anesthetic from which the dog didn't recover as he suffered from undiagnosed kidney complaints. That's so sad. On hearing the news of her dog's death, Hindley became furious and accused police of murdering Puppet. One of the few occasions detectives witnessed any emotional response from her. Dang. So she helped kill five people in which her lover or her accomplice or whatever they were sexually assaulted them and she only showed remorse for her dog she wrote a letter to her mother shortly afterwards and wrote quote i feel as well i guess not quote because she didn't say it but she wrote i feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces i don't think anything could hurt me more than this has the only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of puppet and hurt him Yeah, so that was... Okay, so basically they pleaded not guilty to the charges. Both were called to give evidence. Brady for over eight hours and Hindley for six. Although Brady admitted to hitting Evans with an axe, he did not admit to killing him. Because the pathologist reported that Evans' death was accelerated by strangulation, but he was arguing against that. Under cross-examination by the prosecuting uh, counsel, all Brady would admit was that I hit Evans with an axe. If he died from the axe blows, I killed him. Hanley denied any knowledge of the photographs of Saddleworth Moore found by the police had been taken near the graves of the victims. The 16-minute tape of Leslie and Downey was played in open court, and Hanley admitted that her attitude towards Downey was brusque and cruel, but claimed that that was only because she was afraid that someone might hear Downey screaming. Hanley claimed that when Downey was being undressed, she herself was downstairs. When the pornographic photographs were taken, she was looking out the window. Okay. And that when Downey was being strangled, she was running a bath. Um, But, okay. On May 6th, after having deliberated for a little over two hours, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders and Hindley guilty of the murders of Downey and Evans. As the death penalty for murder had been abolished, they were held on remand and the judge passed the only sentence that the law allowed, life imprisonment. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences and Hindley was given two, plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had murdered John Kilbride. Good. Um, Brady was taken to a pri- Durham prison and Hindley was sent to Holloway prison. Like I said at the beginning of this, 20 years later, another there was later investigation. So in 1985, Brady allegedly confessed to a journalist that he had also been responsible for the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, something that the police already suspected as both children lived in the same area as Brady and Hindley and had disappeared at about the same time. Um, they reopened the case, an investigation headed by Detective Chief Superintendent Peter Topping. There, Since the Moore's murders came to light in 1965, regional and national newspapers have been keen to name other missing children and teenagers from in and near the Manchester area as possible victims of Brady and Hindley. One victim was Stephen Jennings, a three-year-old West Yorkshire boy who was last seen alive December 1962. His body was finally found buried in a field in 1988, but the following year, his father, William Jennings, was found guilty of his murder. Wow. Well, that's, that's something else on its own. 
Yeah. Yeah, so basically they got accused of a lot more than what they did because, well, who wouldn't? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Ay, ay, ay. That was a doozy. Oh, so on December 16th, 1986, um, Henley made the first of two visits to assist the police in search of the ch- other children at Saddleworth Moor. Four, four police cars left at 4.30 a.m. and about the same time police closed all roads. And it was patrolled by 200 officers. Henley and her solicitor arrived by helicopter from an airfield near Maidstone. She was wearing a donkey jacket and she was driven and walked around the area. It was difficult for Henley to make a connection between her memories of the area and what she saw on the day. And she was apparently nervous that the helicopter was flying. And at 3 p.m. she was returned to the helicopter and taken back. Some people describe the visit as a fiasco or publicity stunt and a mindless waste of money. So basically they didn't think that they were being honest and that they weren't going to find anything. Yeah. Wow. Let's see if they ever actually found. Okay, so um, over the next few months, they they were searching, and Hindley's clue directed them to a specific area. And on July 1st, 1987, after more than 100 days of searching, they found a body buried three feet below the surface. And it was only 100 yards from the place where Leslie and Downey had been found. Well, they were not looking very hard then. Yeah. Really. <coughs> um. Well, I mean, I guess that's a, like, decent amount, but still, that's still not that much. Um, so, yeah, so it ended up being Reed's body, Pauline Reed. So, uh, they got that one. And Brady wanted to go back to the Moors, but they didn't let him. Oh. And a few days after his visit, Brady wrote a letter to BBC television reporter giving some sketchy details of five additional murders that he claimed to have carried out. Brady refused to identify his alleged victims, and the police failed to discover any unsolved crimes matching the few details that he supplied. Yeah. Henley told Toppin that she knew nothing of these killings. Wow. So, he just obviously was imagining shit in his head that he wanted her to do, I guess. Yeah. Um, so on August 24th, 1987, they called off their search, despite not having found Keith Bennett's body. Um, Brady was taken to the moor for a second time on December 1st, but he was unable to locate the burial site. Jesus. <laughs> he claimed to have killed two victims in Scotland. Huh. Oh, in 2003... They launched another search and for the body of Keith Bennett, but they officially gave up the search, saying that only a major scientific breakthrough or fresh evidence would see the hunt for this body restart. Hmm. In August 2012, it was claimed that Brady may have given 
details of the location of Keith Bennett's body to one of his visitors. A woman was subsequently arrested on suspicion of preventing the burial of a body without lawful excuse. But a few months later, they announced that there was insufficient evidence to press charges. And Keith Bennett's body remains undiscovered as of 2019, although his family continues to search the more. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's really, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. I didn't like that. Yeah. Well. Well, now that we've gotten into all of this, now I gotta go take Mama out and then go to bed. What? All your doors and windows. Well, in good in good news, Aunt Anna is ordering Girl Scout cookies today. Oh heck yeah, I want some. <laughs> well, text her and tell her what you want. No, I don't actually want to buy them. Oh. Well, tell mom to get you a box. Okay. Uh huh. All right. Well, cool. Now that I'm depressed forever from both of our cases that were awful. That's just how it be. Come on. Alright, well, I guess. Wait, say the outro. Thanks for getting spooky with us. <laughs> Alright. Alright, see you later. tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow? Alright, awesome. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.